this is Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. This is a show where we go into the periphery of history. I'm Carter McNish. And I'm Ryan Bagley. Today is part two of our story on the Andrews Raids, also known as the Great Locomotive Chase of the American Civil War. If you haven't already, be sure to check out part one of this story, which can be found on the Radio Free Hillsdale SoundCloud page. And if you're listening on the radio, be sure to check out this week's episode online as well, where we have more content that we couldn't fit into this time. And if you're already listening online, well, you're pretty great, I guess. When last we saw our intrepid heroes, James Andrews and his crew had successfully commandeered a steam engine called the General as part of their mission to sabotage Confederate railroads between Atlanta and Chattanooga. After being delayed at the Kingston Station, they are on the move again, with William A. Fuller in hot pursuit on his borrowed train, the Yona. After Kingston, they head north, and arriving less than 20 minutes later, Fuller arrives in the Yona. Fuller is catching up very quickly. So Fuller alerts the station master at Kingston that that train was actually a stolen train. And the station master tries to relay a telegraph north, warning the other stations that the general had been stolen. Except, when he tries to send his telegraph message, the line's dead. Andrews had stopped just, a, just out of sight of Kingston, cut the wires, and kept going. So now, no chance of Fuller relaying the word north. At Kingston, there was a waiting northbound train, one of the regular locomotives, that Fuller actually was able to commandeer, and now he, instead of having a shunting engine, had a real train engine to follow. And so now Fuller has an engine that is capable of going as fast as the General, which is a huge upgrade from on foot being just a couple hours earlier. No kidding. It's incredible that he kept up and gained on the train that quickly as it was. But now that he was on equal footing in terms of mode of transportation, there the odds of Andrew's Raiders making it home seem to be diminishing all the more quickly. Yes. And so Fuller continues the pursuit and Andrews continues to run. All the while, Andrews does not know he's being pursued, by the way. At this point, he's still in the dark. He just thinks that this is really bad that they're getting delayed. He does not know that there is a train hot on his heels. And it's around this point where he actually encounters the first of, I believe, three or four bridges that he was supposed to burn down. All he had was the fire in the boiler and these boxcars, which are made of wood. All these bridges are covered bridges, which means that if you leave a boxcar in there, put on the parking brake, and set it on fire, the bridge will catch fire. That's why he's got these boxcars attached to the train. This is because he didn't have any demolition equipment or explosives or uh, stuff to burn down a bridge with. So he gets to the first bridge, puts the boxcar on the end of the train in parking, takes some coal from the boiler, which is on fire, shovels it into the car, and then moves away as the bridge starts to fill up with smoke. 20 minutes later, Fuller shows up, finds the car burning on the bridge, the bridge has not yet caught fire, and he runs out, goes up to the top of the boxcar, unparks the parking brake, and takes the engine and basically rams it off the bridge. And it is now on the front of the train, unconnected because the trains didn't have couples on the front. They were now pushing this car in front of them. Still on fire? Still on fire. That is one hardcore conductor. And you got to imagine the, uh, the rail that... You, basically, the parking brake is this... Um, twisting it's got a wheel at the top and it's a shaft down below yeah i've seen the polar express yeah and so <laughs> if this boxcar is on fire 
he's almost certainly burning his hands to do it. So, pretty incredible. So, after the burning of this first bridge, and Fuller's actually preventing of the burning of this first bridge, the general passes through the town of Adairsville, where there is a siding. They pull over on the siding, and this southbound train, with the engine called the Texas at the head, passes by. Once it's through, on schedule this time, Andrews goes off the siding and continues north. Now, Fuller is going northbound at top speed, and the Texas is going southbound at regular speed, a closing speed of about 40 miles an hour. Which means that if they crash into each other around some blind corner, that's game over. The, both engines are done. They're kaput. So Fuller knows this is coming and decides to stop the train and wait for the Texas to get to him. He and another man run out about a half mile in front of the engine to wave down the Texas and tell it to stop before it actually crashes in to the engine, thus giving Andrews some time to widen the gap. The Texas arrives and encounters Fuller. Fuller flags it down, tells the engineer that the guys in that train that they had just passed were actually Union spies, which they were slowly but surely piecing together the picture of what was going on. At first they thought it was just some stupid people trying to steal a train, some robbers or whatever. They were slowly, with the bridge burning and all of that, seeing the strategic implications of this and piecing it together. Tells him that Union spies had stolen the train and that they needed to turn around right now. So he hops onto the Texas and the engineer throws it into full reverse. And they go through Adairsville and in a flying switch, I'll explain to you in a minute what a flying switch is, take the freight cars of the train shunt them onto a siding, and move the Texas at full speed, just the Texas and its wood tender, north, in reverse, of course. Here's what a flying switch is. As the Texas is approaching the switch at Adairsville, Fuller jumps off the train as it's slowing down and sprints forward to the switch, which is literally just a lever that you pull to either take the, make the direction of the track go onto the siding or on the northbound line. He sprints ahead of the train, opens the switch to the siding, and as that's going on, one of the people on the train reaches down to the coupling between the tender and the first boxcar and uncouples it. After this is done, the train goes full speed forward to try and slow down, ditching the cars as they're still moving from the momentum, and they move onto the siding. Of course, the train is still heading north, so after the last boxcar enters the siding, Fuller throws the switch back the other way so that the train could now go north and as the train's moving he hops back on and the train continues back north so a pretty epic little maneuver there yeah you know it's no amateur can pull off the flying switch no kidding so the uh, andrews raiders got very unlucky in that they were facing probably one of the most experienced conductors in the entire confederacy yeah and had they caught on by this point that they were being followed or were they still in the dark they were still in the dark wow which is disappointing because you know we've with Andrews and Fuller knowing one another, it would have been just like this great hero nemesis thing if they knew that one was chasing the other. It would just be so cool, but Andrews didn't get the memo. Before moving along, just a reminder that you're listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. North of Adairsville, there's more bridges, and Andrews is still slowing down to try and cut telegraph wires and remove rails from the actual train line. And he's in the process of removing a rail when he sees behind him towering black smoke to the south. That's weird, he thinks. 
there's no northbound train scheduled for this time. And what's more, it seems to be moving pretty quickly. And it's at this moment where they finally surmise something's not right. I think we're being chased. So Andrews and his men pack up the operation, abandon trying to derail the train, and start legging it north as fast as they can because now they know they're being pursued. Of course, all this time they've been burning fuel, and the fuel that they would have been using to get to Chattanooga has now been burned. So they've only got about half the fuel that they need in order to get north. It's still enough to reach a couple of the bridges, though, and they don't know whether the bridge they were on already has been burned. So they presume not because this train is chasing them. So they're going to try and leg it to this next bridge, burn it, make sure that it gets burned, and then ditch the train, try and head north. They move on. The Texas chasing them all the while, a full speed reverse. Remember, Andrews has these two boxcars, which weigh about a ton combined, and they're slowing him down. Whereas Fuller, in his engine, has no such obstacle, right? He is just an engine going at full breakneck speed. Beyond the point of safety, too, this is full throttle, right? We were saying that they could go in short bursts for a bit faster, but this is, we don't care, this engine might break, but we need to stop these guys. Now, as these raiders are heading north, Fuller is now within about 10 minutes steam distance, right, from actually catching them up. So if they stop, they've only got about 5-10 minutes to actually do anything what they want to do before Fuller actually reaches them, which is not a good margin of error. So from now on, the, the raiders have zero time to actually rip up the tracks and prevent the Texas from moving on further. So their only shot is trying to burn down a bridge. And pretty much Andrews, as well as the rest of the Raiders, are in survival mode now. So they are moving north through the town of Dalton and pass under Tunnel Hill, which is one of the few spots on the line where there's an actual tunnel. They use the tunnel to their advantage, you see. So they get Tunnel Hill. The tunnel actually goes uphill as it goes through the tunnel. So the north side of the tunnel is up higher elevation than the south side of the tunnel. They get to the end of the tunnel, stop the train, and start moving it in reverse. They unhook the last boxcar in the train, there's only two of them now, and send it flying 15 miles an hour back down the tunnel, or back toward the tunnel. They start moving north again. Fuller, as he enters the tunnel, doesn't know there's a boxcar heading at 15 miles an hour back towards him. Now, unfortunately for the Andrews Raiders, and fortunately for Fuller, they were too far ahead of the tunnel when they reversed and sent the car flying back for the car to reach the entrance to the tunnel on the north side before Fuller did. What they were hoping for was that the car and the train would meet in the tunnel where Fuller couldn't see anything because it was pitch dark. But Fuller exits the tunnel and moments later sees the car coming barreling down the track towards him, orders the train into full forward, right, because they're heading in full speed reverse, and just barely managed to equalize speed before the car reaches them and just gives them a light tap on the engine. And so, very lucky for Fuller. Wow. And then, as they equalize the speed, they throw it back into full reverse, slow down, then speed back up going north, and now they're pushing another car, which is actually going to slow them down a little bit. So now the two trains are about even. And, of course, a train can't quite go as fast in reverse as it does forward. Uh, so that's another advantage that Andrews has. Not enough to really 
pull away from Fuller, though. Fuller is going to stay pretty close. So after Tunnel Hill, they finally reach another bridge, and Andrew's men attempt to burn this bridge down. Fuller, of course, reaches the bridge, does the same thing, and uh, gets the car off the bridge and prevents the bridge from being burned. At this point, I'd like to remind you once again that you're listening to Peripheral History on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. And now, 87 miles north of Marietta, Georgia, and just 12 miles from Chattanooga, the general is running out of fuel. And it's at this point that Andrews and his men decide to ditch the engine and make for Chattanooga on foot. Um, this is near the town of Ringold. Yeah, it's about two miles north of the town of Ringgold that they finally run out of fuel and run out of steam, and the train is getting slower and slower and slower, and they see the smoke coming up closer and closer and closer behind them, and they make the choice, split into groups of two, the same groups of two that they came down there in, and make their way as best they can north. They ditch the train two miles north of Ringgold. There's a little monument there today that I've actually visited, and... Um, they start making their way overland towards Chattanooga to meet back up with General Mitchell. As they're trying to do this, the Texas finally pulls up to the general and sees it abandoned in pretty much perfect condition other than it being out of fuel. And um, the, uh, they alert Confederate authorities, and the Confederate cavalry is sent to scour the countryside for these guys, and almost all of them are rounded up. I believe 16 of them are rounded up and put in Confederate prison. Within two weeks. Yeah, all all of them had been caught within two weeks. All of them had been caught within two weeks, yeah. And so they're in prison, and of course, these guys are screwed, right? They were spies. It's it's important to mention, too, that General Mitchell's attack on Chattanooga also failed. Yes, so not only did this fail, but General Mitchell's attack failed, in large part due to the fact that none of the bridges got burned, which was in large part due to the actions of William A. Fuller. So Fuller became a hero across the Confederacy, without a doubt, you know, that's... Oh, I'm sure. He was pretty much set for the rest of his wartime service as a conductor. He was promoted right up the ranks, right? Um, Of course, in the end, it wouldn't go well for the Confederacy, but, you know, while he was there, it went pretty well. And so these guys are sitting in prison, and eight of them are going to be hanged uh, as spies, and the rest of them don't want to find out whether or not their trials will result in them being hanged either. And one of those eight was Andrews himself. He was hanged on June 7th. The remaining soldiers decide to try and escape. Eight of them escaped, and the other six decided to wait it out as prisoners of war. Yes. And so these eight guys break out from prison and make, in groups of two, their ways either north or south to friendly Union lines. I'll tell you just a couple of the stories. So two of them managed two of them managed to go overland through the mountains, the Smoky Mountains, through Tennessee, make it back to Union lines that way. Another couple went down the Tennessee River and floated themselves down it to where Union lines were and managed to get themselves rescued that way. And another two, instead of going north, went south and found the Chattanoochee River, where they built a raft and floated down it for a couple weeks before entering the Gulf of Mexico, where a Union blockade ship saw them and picked them up. Oh, whoa. Real-life Huckleberry Finn. In fact, indeed it is true. That was real-life Huckleberry Finn. And these guys 
this book that I'm quoting from here, Daring and Suffering, written by one of the Andrews Raiders, has an excellent illustration of these guys uh, being picked up by the blockade runner. They had these fully grown beards, right? They were starved. Uh, they just were not in the best shape. And it's amazing that they were able to actually get to where they were going. Yeah, you. it would take a lot of nerve to approach a union ship in the Gulf of Mexico and claim that you're that you're a union soldier who's been stranded, let alone trust anybody who comes to you with that kind of story. Right, yeah. So it's incredible that these guys managed to make it out. Not just these two, but all eight in particular, right? Um, and so these guys make it out, make it back north, and they're national heroes, right? Even though the mission was a failure, it was so daring and so courageous that they're hailed as heroes when they get back home. As for these six guys in the south, they're taking their chances, and with the uh, repatriation of these eight that had escaped, the story gets out that some of these raiders, which all of them had been presumed dead, are actually alive. And so Secretary of War Stanton tries to inquire as to the welfare of these prisoners, and the Confederates uh, can't really send them any information on that, or at least they choose not to. And Stanton threatens the Confederates with, with uh, retaliation if these prisoners are executed, these six. And so a few months later, in March of 1863, the Secretary of War and the U.S. Department of War manages to finally exchange these prisoners from the south to the north with Confederate prisoners going from the north to the south. And so they'll arrive in Washington, D.C. in March of 1863. So they made it back to D.C. on March 19th after being traded from the Confederacy on March 17th. They were in a prison in Richmond at that time, so it only took about a day's sailing to get back to Washington. So they arrive on the 19th, and uh, on the 21st, they are sent to the Secretary of War's office, Edwin Stanton, and are presented with this new medal. You see, Ed Edwin Stanton... Uh, just a few weeks earlier, the Congress had passed a uh, law making a new medal to be given to soldiers. Prior to this, the only military awards the United States gave out were to officers. This medal was created specifically to be won by anyone. Any soldier could win this medal. And it was called the Congressional Medal of Honor. And so when these guys arrived in Washington, Edwin Stanton had heard of the story and wanted immediately to meet with them. So they did. They arrive there at the Secretary of War's office. Edwin Stanton greets them, all six of them, and inquires as to their story. They tell him, confirm all of the stuff he had already been hearing just through the airwaves, right, through reports, everything, and uh, decides that the first medals of honor to be awarded will be awarded to these six men. And uh, William Pittenger, the guy who wrote this book I'm quoting from, was one of those six men who had been traded back. And he recalls Edwin Stanton saying this to them, quote, Congress has, by a recent law, ordered medals to be prepared on this model, and he handed them a model, and your party shall have the first. They will be the first that have been given to private soldiers in this war. And he handed the first to a certain private parrot who was in prison beaten and tortured by the Confederates for information. So the first... Medal of Honor was, was given to this guy, and in turn, the six of them, including Pittenger, were given their medals. And so these six guys, William Pittenger among them, 
were given the first batch of Medals of Honor ever awarded. That's amazing. And as for the rest of them, all of the soldiers on the raid, but three, the two that didn't make it, and there was one that didn't actually get the medal, have been subsequently given Medals of Honor, 18 in total, which is probably the highest awarding rate of the Medal of Honor for any unit, quote-unquote, in any war. Unfortunately, Andrews himself and the one other civilian who were part of the raid were not eligible for the Medal of Honor because of their civilian status. Yeah, so Andrews, if he was a soldier, would have been almost certainly given the Medal of Honor. But, of course, his whole shtick was that he was a spy, and spies can't be soldiers. Or at least that's what they thought until these soldiers became spies. So a very interesting story, no doubt. And so after the war, Pittenger and these guys are basically celebrities. They're all promoted to first lieutenants in the Ohio Volunteers because they, didn't, they were offered commissions in the regular army. But of course, these guys wanted to go back to their regular lives after the war. So they took commissions in the Ohio Volunteers instead, which wasn't a regular army commission, which didn't entail post-war service because there was a difference at this time between the rank you had in the volunteer service and the rank you had in the regular army. And Pittenger actually uh, published the first edition of this book, Daring and Suffering, uh, shortly after uh, the raid concluded in the 1860s. And uh, this subsequent edition, which I've got here, was published in the 1880s, adapted, revised, adding in a bunch of different other sources. And it's uh, the most complete account of the raid and the only primary source we have. That's really cool. I bet it was popular in its own day. Oh, yes. This book was a bestseller. Uh, you know, I mean, you've been hearing this story. And it's just like an awesome story, right? Definitely. You know, not something that you would think of, of a Civil War epic. But certainly, it just goes to show that fact is often crazier and cooler than fiction. I mean, you couldn't make this up. It's, it's just incredible. And so after the war, these guys were celebrities. Uh, they had meetings. Uh, the raid became famous north and south because the north had these heroes, these guys that were on this raid. And the south had a hero in William A. Fuller, the guy who had chased them down. So both sides had heroes to rally behind. And that was really one of the biggest things that kept this raid in the popular memory was that both sides had stuff that they could, uh, you know, relate to in it. Yeah. And so... These guys, for the years after the war, up until the early 1900s when they started dying out, uh, these guys would have reunions every once in a while. The General and the Texas were both preserved. Uh, the General being, of course, the locomotive that was stolen, and the Texas being the locomotive that was ultimately the capture, the captor of the General, or the liberator, I suppose you could say. The General is preserved in the uh, Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History in Kennesaw, Georgia, and... The Texas is preserved at the Atlanta Historical Center. And uh, after this, the story of the Great Locomotive Chase has persisted in the American cultural memory for at least a little while. Yeah, so there was a couple movies made about it. The first by Buster Keaton in the 1920s, right? Yeah, in 1926, Buster Keaton released the silent film The General, which was loosely based on this story and definitely played up the more comedic side of it. Oh, yeah, indeed. I've seen this film. It's awesome. It, of course, is a silent film with the kind of soundtrack accompanying it. And um, it's just a classic Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton movie where, you know, it's all sorts of physical comedy and it's awesome, but it doesn't really tell you the story. 
but there is another movie that will tell you the story. And that is the 1956 Walt Disney film, The Great Locomotive Chase. Yeah, so Walt Disney, he made this. This was a really big passion project of his. He was always interested in trains. If you've ever been to Disney World, there's a pretty big train presence there. So, you know, he couldn't pass a story like this up. And so he spent a bunch of his money and a bunch of his own time recreating the great locomotive chase in Technicolor in extensive detail, all the way down to getting engines that looked almost exactly like the ones used in the raid to perform all of the stunts that were done during the Andrews raid. All of the flying switches, all of the throwing trains into reverse, stopping on a dime, all of that stuff is done in the movie. And it is, uh, it is uh, definitely... A uh, very true telling of the story. Wow. Yeah, so a technical achievement to be sure. And it's not often you get to watch a historical movie that Walt Disney made a passion project of, you know? Yeah. Uh, It's almost like you see the DreamWorks credit in the opening of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. And you're thinking, these are the same guys that made Toy Story. What are you doing? I know, yeah, pretty crazy. Especially when one of Walt Disney's other achievements was dumping lemmings out of a truck to uh, perpetuate the myth that they commit mass suicide. Right. So, you know, Walt Disney, one of the, uh, my favorite Disney film, you know, that's my favorite piece of trivia. Oh, what's your favorite Disney film? They're expecting Cinderella or whatever. No, the great locomotive chase. Mine is still definitely Cinderella. Okay. Well, you know, that's fair. It's a good one. And um, from 1979 onward in the town of Adersville, Georgia, there is an annual great locomotive chase festival in October. Yeah, and there's also a uh, the two the two engines that were used in the filming of the movie, the Great Locomotive Chase, the the Great Locomotive Chase, the Disney movie, are actually in North Carolina, still running along that same stretch of railroad that they used to film the movie. Oh, that's cool. So you can go see those too. And uh, the general and the Texas stayed in working order long after the war. They went on tours of the country up until the 1960s, shortly after the release of. The Great Locomotive Chase movie. Whoa. Uh, all the way up to the 100th anniversary, right, of the Civil War, 1965 being the last anniversary, right? That's crazy. And so these engines after that were then preserved in the museums, we said, the Kennesaw, the Southern Museum of Civil War and Locomotive History and the Atlanta History Center, where you can still see them today. And I've been there. Um, very cool spot to go and see them. They actually play the movie The Great Locomotive Chase at the museum that has the general in Kennesaw. And the museum in Kennesaw is actually on the spot of the Big Shanty Station. Oh, cool. So if you go to that museum, literally just across a little street, Big Shanty Station, where they stole it. Wow. And, uh, of course, two miles north of Ringgold on the railroad line, you can see the memorial they placed, the little marble plaque uh, saying that this was where the general was captured, or recaptured, I guess. And all of the raiders, or most of them, all the ones that were hanged and were killed, uh, were are buried in the Chattanooga National Cemetery. And there's a memorial there uh, to James Andrews and the raiders with a uh, metal statue of the general built on top of it. Oh, I saw a picture of that as I was doing research for this. It was a really cool-looking monument. Yeah, it's one of the most unique Civil War monuments you'll ever find. I'm sure. So definitely worth a stop if you're in Chattanooga. And so there's all sorts of stuff like this, and it's the you, you'll find the memory of it everywhere once you know it. But 
after the 1950s and the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, the story really starts to fade out of the common memory. And it's really sad, you know? Yeah. It's such a great story. And, of course, you know, everybody knows at least one story of an awesome Medal of Honor winner. You know, some heroic action that defies all reason and expectation. And this definitely is held among them. Yeah, and I hadn't even heard of it until you told me the story a couple months ago when we were first uh, when we were first tossing ideas around for what this show would look like and what kind of stories we'd be telling. Yeah, and it's just one of those unknown stories that isn't in the main section of history. You know, you wouldn't read about it in your average history book of the Civil War, which is sad because it is important. It really deserves to be there. And it, and this is the whole point of peripheral history, right? We're taking stuff that is in the periphery, and we're trying to bring it out and show it to you guys because this stuff deserves to be heard and told. Indeed. Well, that's all we have for you today on this special episode of Peripheral History. Tune in next week where we'll be discussing more history in the periphery. Peripheral History. 